Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. The life everlasting. Amen. A few years ago, I had some, some friends in town uh, from Michigan, and we decided that we were going to show them a good time. We were going to cook some good Florida food, some very non-Michigan food for them. So, of course, uh, being a Tampa native, I decided that I would uh, cook up some Cuban food. And so I cooked up a bunch of uh, mojo pork and some black beans, some yellow rice, um, some fresh cut onions, all, all of the things that you would normally cook for just a nice Cuban family meal. And so we decided to let our guest go first through sort of the serving line. And so they, they all served themselves and then we sat down and, and there was something that happened that was very sort of, you could tell where people were from when they sat down. Because all of the people uh, who were from Florida who had eaten uh, pork and rice and beans uh, before knew that when you eat Cuban pork and black beans and yellow rice, you just pile it all together. You just take it all and you make a big mound of it on top of your plate and then you cover it in hot sauce and onions. That's how you eat black beans and yellow rice and pork. That's just the way you do it. But what had happened was... All of our friends who were from Michigan, when we sat down and looked at their plate, what happened? They had a pile over here of their yellow rice. And then, and then a nice little pile over here, their black beans. Their pork was well, well partitioned and well away from anything else. And they just had no idea what to do with raw onions on food. They just, I, I'm not even sure what those are for. So they just ignored those altogether. And it was very clearly one of those moments where you could tell who was from here and who was not from here. You could very clearly tell that this is not the way that we do things. Now let me ask you something. Was it wrong for them to have their black beans, their yellow rice, and their Cuban pork all on different parts of their plate? Of course not. Of course it wasn't wrong. It's in bad taste. So it's, it's not a great idea. It's not how you do it, but it's not wrong, right? That sense of it's not how you do it is what I want to key in on for just a second. Because one of the things this morning is we're going to talk about a text that has some, some complicated things in it. And so as we do, I want to take a moment just to talk about why we do some of the things we do, specifically in the way that we preach here at City Church, because what we do is different from a number of churches around us. So why is it that we really only preach through books of the Bible or through lists that come from the Bible? Why is that sort of the preaching plan, the, the way that we do things at City Church, right? We do that for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons we do that is because we think that the Bible is the best way for us to grow as Christians. And getting it as close to the way that the Bible sets itself up is something that is important to us. That's why not only do we preach this way, but that's also why we encourage folks to use our CBR journals. Because because they're a way for us to get more and more of the scripture into our hearts, into our minds. And so we think that, that preaching through things this way is the best way for us to connect to God's word. 
But if we're going to do that, there's going to be a couple of consequences. If we decide that we're going to preach through a book of the Bible, something's going to happen, right? There's always going to be those parts of the books of the Bible that are really easy that you like to preach, and then there's going to be those parts that you'd rather ignore, right? If you have read the Bible for any amount of time, if you've read it at any length, there are parts of it that make a lot of sense, and there are parts of it that are very complex. There are parts of it that you go, ah, yes, that's the part of the Bible I like, and there are parts of it that make you uncomfortable. So when we preach through the Bible this way, one of the things that we try to do is understand what the Bible would have meant to the people who heard it first. Whether that's the people of Israel wandering around in the desert, as Moses lays out the law to them. Whether that's, in our case, the people of Asia Minor, of modern-day Turkey, hearing this letter from the Apostle Peter, what would they have heard? What would this have meant to them? What was this like for them? And then how does that affect us? So I bring all this up. I do this sort of meta-conversation this morning uh, for one specific reason. The passage that we're going to talk about today from the book of First Peter deals with the relationship between slaves and masters. Now, this is something that we as a culture have a difficulty with, right? A, a lot of churches would, would make a couple of mistakes, and, and we're tempted to make a couple of mistakes as we think about this text. One mistake would be to ignore it. Right? This text deals with something difficult. This text deals with Peter instructing slaves on how to relate to their masters. Culturally, for us in this moment, if I were to say and put on our social media, we're going to have a sermon about how slaves should relate to their masters, that would be, that would be in bad taste, probably. Right? It's not a great idea. And so the temptation is to go, okay, well, if that's the case, then we're just going to skip over this entirely. And what happens is, if we do that, we miss out on something that the Bible is doing, because the Bible is incredibly revolutionary. It's hard for us when we sort of take a microscopic view, like of just this text where he's telling slaves how to behave around their masters, and don't take the big picture view, the, the long view of what the Bible does, because the Bible does something really different. The Bible is always a step ahead of its culture on this issue. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, slavery was regulated. And we may hear that and think that that's a bad idea, but that's a big step ahead of the culture where it was unregulated, where there was no speaking of how to treat them. But this passage does something very unique. Peter is giving us what, what the ancients called a household code. It's kind of a code of ethics, a, you know, the kind of thing that you'd, you'd put on your wall. You know, in this house, we laugh a lot. You know, we give hugs. In this house, we eat dinner together. You know, those, those kind of things that like home goods sells for like $10 and you put them on your wall and you think, oh, isn't that swell? Look at that. We've got one of those things in our house. That's kind of what this passage was. And this is the only passage, this is the only household code in the ancient world that actually spoke to slaves. None of the Greek ethicists, none of the philosophers of Rome ever addressed slaves in their household codes. Do you know why? Because it was only Christians that considered slaves to be humans. They were a step ahead of their culture. So if we ignore this text, we ignore the path of redemption where the Bible is moving towards an abolitionist view. 
But as we read this text, we also can't draw parallels immediately to what is fresh on our mind as we think, as the word slavery comes into our mind, what most of us think of is our own American history and American chattel slavery. The slavery of the New Testament was not identical to that. There are significant differences, um, both in the, the number of slaves, but also in their treatment and the way that that worked. And so we have to be honest that in the past, Christians have used this text to justify a lot of really bad stuff. And so if we ignore this text, if we brush past this, we don't sort of stop and say, hey, Christianity has misbehaved on this topic using this text. Because we have. Because we have. So what do we do? We look at this text and we say, okay, Peter is about to give instructions on how slaves are supposed to relate to their masters. We should see it in some ways as socially revolutionary and begin to apply that to our hearts. So here's what I want to do. I want to read to you the last part of 1 Peter 2. And as we do, I'd like you to stand and I want you to hear what God is saying to us this morning. Servants, be subject to your masters in all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, on the one hand, while this passage is addressed specifically to the servants of Paul's time, this passage is very much for us. Because this passage lying just underneath the skin of being about servants and masters is really about something more. What this passage is actually about is our unwillingness to suffer unjustly. You and I are unwilling to suffer for doing the right thing. And where this comes from, where this unwillingness to suffer when we're doing the right thing comes from is a sense of self-reliance that all of us have inside of ourselves. You see, all of us have this idea that I'm going to make my own path, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to make my own way, and if anybody stands in my way, Well, that's their problem, and I need to push them out of the way because I'm 
the master of my domain. I am the captain of this ship. I'm the one who's in charge. And so as we say that, as we do that, we become unwilling to suffer injustice. So Paul speaks of this in the context of slaves and masters. He talks about what it's like for these servants to do that. And what's interesting is, he begins to describe a different sort of ethic. He begins to describe a different sort of thing. What he begins to describe is something that only free people can understand. So he's talking to slaves about how they can actually be free. Earlier this week, I was asking around and I asked people for, for a scene in a movie or a TV show where there is a, where there is a captor and that captor is sort of torturing or beating or, or, or hurting somebody and that person won't give in. That person won't give in. And I said, what, what movie was that from? What was that from? And the list of responses that I got was 80, 80 responses long because everybody had a different one. Oh, it's like this movie. Oh, it's like that. Oh, I, I remember a scene like that in this. It's almost become sort of a, a cultural sort of trite little trope, right? It's, it's a thing that we see everywhere. Whether it's, whether it's James Bond or SpongeBob SquarePants, we have all seen moments in whatever we watch for entertainment where somebody has suffered unjustly and the person who is being tortured won't give in. And it makes the person who's torturing them even matter, even, even worse, even more so. And that's a little bit of what Paul's describing here. What Paul is saying is, look, no matter what your station in life, no matter what class you are in, no matter what's going on in your life, you can live as a freed person in Jesus. Because what ultimately matters is not what your station is in life, is not what your class is here in America in the 21st century, is ultimately that you are a citizen of heaven. So that terrible boss doesn't control you. So that debt collector isn't your God. What this is really about is the fact that we can begin to live a different sort of life. And so he describes that sort of life. He says, first of all, this is not the sort of life that gets mad and upset when you suffer for something that you have done wrong. Some of us uh, use the term suffering to describe getting what we deserve. You know, I can't believe that professor. I just turned in the paper a week late and he gave me a bad grade on it. I am suffering because of him. No, you're not. You're reaping the consequence of what you've done wrong. I, I, I can't believe that my boss had the gall, that my boss had the nerve to fire me after I was only late three times this week. No, you're not suffering. You're getting what you deserve. Paul says, look, it is, it is no big deal when you do something wrong and suffer for it. In some ways, you are just reaping what you have sown. Look, turn your papers in on time. Show up to work on time. These are the sort of things that we can do. Can you tell that I'm a little bit like of a stickler for like timeliness? <laughs> if those are the illustrations that I came up with, let's not, let's not think too hard about that. Paul says, no, there's something else going on. What we're talking about is suffering when we're doing the right thing. 
Paul says, when you are doing the right thing and then you suffer for it, that is something that was and is filled with grace, Peter says. When you're doing the right thing and you suffer for doing the right thing. Now, if we really let that sink in, that grates on us. That grates on us because for some of us, we have this idea that if I just do all the right Jesus things, if I just do all the right actions, then my life is going to be good. If I put all the right Jesus energy out into the world, if I put all the positive energy out in the world, then good things are going to come back to me. And we have this idea that if I just do enough right things, God's going to give me all the things that I want. That that relationship that I've been fixated on, if I just read my Bible enough, God's going to fix that relationship. That, that that thing that has been bothering me so much, if I just work hard, if I volunteer enough at church, then God's going to give me what I want. Now, most of us would recognize and see that as something apart from the gospel. That it is not a tit-for-tat system. It is not God rewarding us based on how well we behave this week. That, that is a, a heresy. That is the prosperity gospel. Most of us are smart enough to see through that and go, ah, yes, I don't believe that. But most of us, in our hearts, still live like that is true. Let me, let, me, let me just lay out a case for that for you for a second. What happens to you when you do the right thing? When you maybe even do a difficult thing? And following up on that difficult thing that you do, life does not go your way. How do you react? When you're at work, and you decide that you, you pick your moment. This is going to be the moment where I talk about Jesus. This is going to be the moment where I bring my faith into the workplace. This is going to be the right time for that. And then your boss yells at you about something different. How do you feel? You see, what happens is most of us, we would say, oh, the prosperity gospel is bad. Oh, God does not reward us based on our actions. When it actually comes down to it, when we do good things, we expect God, we're, we're kind of looking and going, eh, well, where you at, God? We live as if it is true. And what happens is that shows that our righteousness, our doing good things, is actually about us and has nothing to do with God. Our righteousness is merely a self-improvement plan cloaked in the language of spirituality. And Peter says we are being called to something different. We are being called to suffer when we do right. But we have a cultural allergy to that. Think about it. How many stories do we read that are the stories of the person who is doing the right thing and something bad happened to them and that's what we get angry about. We don't understand this concept of suffering in the face of injustice. Now I want to take a second just to, to ask a question to those of you who are here who are not Christians. What is the source of injustice in this world? 
Why? We, I think everyone, Christian and non-Christian, would look around this world and go, things aren't right and injustice is real. I think we can all agree on that on some level. But here's the question I have is, what is the source of that injustice? Is it, is it just people's selfishness bumping into one another? That seems thin. That seems not to be able to explain injustice that we see around us in the world, whether that's class injustice, whether that's racial injustice, whether that's poverty injustice, whether that's educational injustice, whatever sort of injustice comes to your mind, as we think about that, it seems to be something more than your selfishness and my selfishness bumping into each other. There seems to be something more cosmic about injustice. And where does that come from? See, one of the things that the Bible does is it tells us that injustice is real. That injustice is not just our selfishness bumping up against one another, though it is that, but there is something more. There is something that is cosmically broken about this world that constantly plays itself out in ways that foster injustice. And we experience those. Church, as we think about all of these ways that that injustice exists, as we think about, about Peter's call to us to suffer when we do right, I think for some of us, this is a level beyond where we're at. I know this is the case for me oftentimes. Because to suffer when I'm doing the right thing, when I'm doing something genuinely righteous, means that I need to be doing publicly something genuinely righteous. And if I'm honest, that is not my story as much as I would like it to be. City Church, when's the last time that you loved somebody in a way that caused your friends who are not Christians to question your sanity? When's the last time you showed the kind of radical kindness that we see in Jesus that caused people around you to go, wait a minute, I don't know if that's a good idea. When's the last time you showed the sort of radical generosity and hospitality to others that Jesus shows to us? And it caused people around you to pause. I think for many of us, before we can get to the suffering for doing the right thing part of this, some of us need to get to the doing the right thing part of this, don't we? Because Peter goes on to say it's not just about the way that masters and slaves, but he begins to show us that this pattern is found in Jesus. It's interesting that the language that he uses as he begins to describe Jesus is the language that comes from Isaiah 53. It's this, this song from the Old Testament called the Song of the Suffering Servant. And part of the thing about Christianity is that Jesus does not identify with the rich and powerful. Jesus does not identify with those who are in control. Jesus identifies with the lowly. Isaiah 53 casts him as a suffering servant, which is exactly what Peter is picking up on. 
Peter quotes it three or four times in this passage. Jesus loves those who don't deserve it in a sacrificial way. And Peter says that this is the pattern that we are to follow. The the pattern that we have as Christians on how we are to live and to love is this. Jesus sacrificially loved those who don't deserve it. How often do you and I sacrificially love those who don't deserve it? And he says, this is our mold. And, and the idea here is that it's, that it's almost like, like if you're a parent, you know that if you really dislike another parent, there's something that you can do that's like the most passive aggressive thing on the planet, which is give somebody else's kids Play-Doh. Okay? <laughs> that is the height of passive aggressive parenting, right? Passive aggressive parenting is giving someone else's kids Play-Doh. Because guess what? It's a mess. It gets in everything. No kid is ever able to clean up their Play-Doh, right? Which means, who has to clean up their Play-Doh? I have to clean up their Play-Doh. But as much as, as much as that's a thing, and as much as I know just the idea of Play-Doh triggers some of you parents, I'm sorry, but think about the molds that Play-Doh comes with. Think about that that pasta maker that you put the Play-Doh in and you push it out and it all comes out like a star, right? That's the idea of this mold, that as we are pressed into Jesus, we are changed. The shape of our life is changed. As we become more and more like him, as we put ourselves more and more in the way of Jesus, Holy Spirit changes us, molds us, reshapes our lives from this blob of Play-Doh into that star that is being pushed through the mold. Peter says the mold, the pattern that we have is self-sacrificial love for those who don't deserve it. Now, if we're honest and we hear that as the pattern for our life and we begin to think about the way that we relate to people where we live, work, and play, as we think about our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, it doesn't take much for us to admit that that is not a picture of the pattern of our life. City Church, you're not alone in this. It doesn't take much for me to admit that that is not the pattern of my life. That is not the mold that I often squeeze into. But the beauty of this passage is, it's not just that Jesus is our pattern, but rather that Jesus is our substitute. You see, for all of this, we fail and fall short. We do not live and subversively love like we should. We do not sort of wage the kind of peace and kindness that Peter talks about in this passage. But do you know who did? Jesus. Jesus went through this life just like we do, yet without sin. And yet as the suffering servant, he didn't just die to give us an example. More than that, he died to take our place. The passage in 1 Peter says, He bore our sins on the cross. 
The cross was Jesus taking your failure and mine to live like this. He was taking your failure and mine to love this sort of radical way and putting on himself. It says, by his wounds, we are healed. So Jesus doesn't just say, do better. Jesus doesn't call us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be more moral this week. Jesus doesn't call us to just try a lot harder than we've been trying. What Jesus does is say, I'm going to take your place. I have already acted on behalf and I'm going to give you my righteousness so that you don't have to prove your righteousness by how good you do this week. You don't have to prove your righteousness by how well you live up to this passage this week. Because I have already done that on your behalf. No, what this passage does is it calls us to look at Jesus. To see the way that we fall short of his pattern of radical love. To see the way that we are self-reliant. The way that we trust in our good works to justify us. And not in what he has done for us already. He calls us to see those things. To name them and to repent of them. To turn away. Jesus, I cannot rely on how well I am behaving because my behavior is not enough. I need something more. I need you to rescue me. I need you to redeem me. He calls us then to believe that Jesus is all we need. We sang the song before, All I Have is Christ. We sing the song, and when we sing, the sands of time are sinking, that I stand not on my merit, but on His. You see, our acceptance and love before the Father is not based on our performance. And City Church, we've got to begin to, to disavow ourselves of that. We've got to begin to retrain our hearts, not to think of our merit, but to trust in His merit. And as we begin to do that, as we begin to trust in what He has already done for us, that becomes transformative love for us. That's the thing. That's the mold that we are being squeezed through. Not the mold of moral performance, but the mold of how Jesus already loves us. The way that Jesus already loved us with this kind of love. So we don't just wake up tomorrow and say, I'm going to be nicer to people around me. We don't leave here saying, I'm going to tip the waitress at locale a little bit more. No, we don't say, I'm going to do morally better. We listen to this sermon. We hear God's word and we say, ah, yes, I need to turn away from trusting in myself and turn to Jesus and what he has already done on my behalf. And as we do that, he begins to change us. And as he changes us, the end of this passage, he gives us a sweet, sweet reminder As we return to Him, as we are changed by Him, He is our shepherd and our overseer. That as we look around at the relationships that we're trying to prove to God that we need, as we look around at all the ways that we are frustrated that that our life hasn't gone the way it wants, we have in Jesus protection and guidance. We have a shepherd and an overseer. And so City Church this morning, as we read this passage, this, this complex passage, we are reminded of how deep Jesus loves us and how much he calls us to a new way of life. Not by trying harder, but by seeing, repenting, believing, turning to him, being changed by his love, and then being able to show that sort of, same sort of love and kindness 
to others. May He do that in your life and mine.